are listening to RMC podcast. My name is Jan Høstrækker. I am the event coordinator at this educational institution. And I'm super happy that once in a while I can find time to do some episodes of this little podcast. And this time I've got something truly interesting for you and it has to do with tuning. You know how digital tools for music production can often be perceived as the land of opportunity. That technology is kind of shrouded in this narrative of democratization, progress and artistic freedom. But there are actually several sides to this story. And this is shown by the person who will be doing most of the talking in this podcast episode, the Iraqi-British musician, composer and researcher Qiyam Alami, who will introduce his very sharply conceived project, Apotome. Apotome is a software that was created as a tool to help counter the cultural asymmetry embedded in modern music-making tools, which share a bias inherited from yeah, mostly Western music theory and culture. With his horizon-expanding method, Kiyamalami points towards a more liberated and creative and inclusive and, yeah, let's say, culturally balanced music-making process. And in this conversation with journalist and PhD in musicology, Anders Reuter, Kiyam Alami will explore the subjects of tuning and the inherited biases of modern music technology. The conversation took place during this year's edition of the Gong Tomorrow Festival in Copenhagen. And yeah, you will be able to hear that this is a recording of a live event and it is not recorded here in this nice and smooth sounding radio studio. The conversation is presented in collaboration with the Gong Tomorrow Festival. Thank you so much for inviting Kiyam Alami and making us aware of his work. I think I want to get started as quick as possible, but just to just to give a quick introduction, just perhaps uh, let people know who you are. Um, sure. Do you want me to do it? Do you want you to I can do it. Yourself? I think okay. I can do it quicker. Okay. <laughs> Better probably. Uh, my name's Kiyam Alami. Uh, I'm a musician, a composer, a researcher, and uh, I predominantly play the oud, the Middle Eastern lute. I play a bunch of other instruments. I have a varied interest in uh, music from all genres and different cultures, and I'm a very big fan of um, electronic music and, and studio production as well. And I'm in the middle, the last year of a PhD in composition, a practice-based PhD, at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire in the UK. Perfect. I think we're mainly here to hear about a program you made called Apatome. And we're going to talk a lot about that in depth and what that entails. But could you just, to begin with, could you tell us a bit more why you started uh, working on your project with Apatome? Yeah, so actually there, there are two softwares. They both run in the web browser, but they're interrelated. One is called Lima. And it's a, it's a tool for creating and exploring different tuning systems. And the other one's called Apotome. And this is a generative music environment for creating generative electronic music using those same tuning systems. And it's not easy to give a quick answer as to why um, I started this project. But ultimately, it comes out of a frustration I started playing the oud very late in my life. Um, I think I was maybe 23, 24 years old. And the oud is a fretless instrument. 
very much like the cello or the violin, so that you, you can, wherever you put your finger, that's the note, that's the sound that you hear. And when I started studying this instrument and the musical cultures of the Middle East and uh, other cultures that I was interested in, such as uh, the music of Azerbaijan, the music of India, etc., I started to hear melodies and music in a slightly different way. And I wanted to be able to use digital tools that I had grown up using. Um, having been a drummer in the past and worked in bands, I was used to using four tracks and uh, studio equipment and then programming in things like, uh, maybe you've heard of tools like Pro Tools or Cubase and Logic, these DAWs, desktop audio workstations. And I started to become very frustrated because what the music I was hearing in my mind and the kind of music I wanted to try and experiment with was when I would start programming, the tools themselves would lead me to a different direction. And I couldn't really understand why until I started doing more and more research into this subject of tuning and the differences in tuning systems from different musical cultures. And then I realized that there is a, there is a restraint because of the technology. And when I realized there was this restraint, I started searching for the tools to get outside of those confines. And the tools were, um, were many, but they often felt very unintuitive, sometimes overly complex, and often with as many limitations as liberties that they afforded me. And so I, got, I became very frustrated and I'd, I stopped working with computers and with electronic equipment in any way. And I focused on my Arud studies. I put myself into a BA program studying ethnomusicology at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And I spent you know, maybe about 10 years kind of immersed in that musical practice. But during that time, I never stopped listening to music that I grew up listening to in London. So I was born in Damascus. We moved to London when I was nine. I got into punk rock and a bunch of other stuff, electronic music, etc. So I never stopped listening to that music and I always had a desire to explore those kinds of sonic terrains, let's say. And it wasn't until a few years ago I became so frustrated again, that I wanted to find a solution. Uh, and so I started developing a couple of devices, but then realized that I should take a different approach. And then I started this PhD and took it upon myself to create these tools in order to allow myself the creative freedom I wanted for my PhD in composition. And the PhD is focused on creating contemporary and experimental Arabic music. So using different compositional techniques, different instrumentations, but trying not to lose the sense of identity. And while doing my research, I very often came across the idea that if you remove language from music, which is a key cultural identifier, then there are only a few other musical elements that actually define what, uh, what's the word, uh, that help you kind of localize where a music might be from. And those are obviously the rhythm, the tuning, and the timbre of the instruments. And I realized that rhythm is very easy to manipulate in modern tools. Timbre is obviously incredibly easy to manipulate, but tuning wasn't. And what I wanted to do in, in my compositional research was try to create 
compositions that felt like Arabic music feels for me, but don't necessarily sound like Arabic music sounds for other people, you know, in general. And so, yeah, that's the long answer. I apologize. <laughs> We're here for long answers, that's fine. It, it struck me when I was looking into your programs and reading up upon um, your work that it sort of intersects two black boxes of, of, mu of music today, that there's sort of two black boxes where we are not, we're taking some things for granted when we listen to them and we're taking perhaps things for granted that we don't know about. And one is tuning. We sort of think that, that there's just one kind of tuning uh, in, in the so-called West. And, and, and the other black box is how electronic music is made, like digital music is made, that we, we can't really relate to digitally synthesized music the same way as like traditional instruments because it's what is it magic like ordinary people listening to a popular music song or whatever they they, they it's difficult to to um yeah imagine how this, the sound was produced so i think you're sort of intersecting these two black boxes so if we could sort of open at least one of them which is the tuning thing can, can you say a bit about what tuning is because to be honest, I'm a PhD in musicology. Uh, I did what well, I was supposed to do to do the groundwork and know music theory. But but this was actually a reminder, a wake-up call for me to to consider how I don't consider uh, what kind of tuning I'm working with. So can you, perhaps some words about sure. what tuning is and what, what kinds of tunings there are and stuff like that? The, the simple way to explain it is that a tuning is the choice that's made for what notes, what, what tones, what pitches an instrument can make when you play it. So, for example, if I were to give you each a set of bamboo pipes and say, make me an instrument, you're going to have to make a decision based on that material and what lengths you want each pipe to be which would then create a tuning system. So that, dis that decision-making process might be systematic, it might be mathematical, it might be scientific, it could be completely intuitive, it could be totally random, but ultimately you're making that decision. And by making that decision, you're creating specific pitches and that's your tuning system. Then you can choose whether you want to play all of them, whether you want to use subsets of them, whether you want to do something else. That process of creating pitches is a process that has been undergone by musical cultures throughout history, throughout the world. And different cultures have decided on different kinds of tunings because of many reasons, aesthetics, science, the materials themselves. So very often the actual material that an instrument is made from can affect the way that it sounds. The same with the way that the instrument looks so if I was to give you, rather than pipes, I gave you a bunch of bars of wood, for example, that you would strike with another piece of wood, you'd have to make a decision whether you want to keep them all the same length, making the same sound, or you want to change their length so that they have different pitches. And based on that and the way that it looks and the way that it sounds, you might make certain decisions. So that's, that's ultimately what tuning is. The general answer that you will get if you search about this online is tuning was discovered by Pythagoras and it's the division of the string and the harmonic series and the ratios of, you know, whatever. 
which is for me very um, convoluted way of explaining an essentially very human process which is tied to aesthetics and choice and and even you know the physics of sound to an extent you sorry you asked me to mention something about different tunings as well so yeah ultimately the predominant tuning that is used in the world today is this tuning system called equal temperament and this is a tuning system that was developed in central europe specifically within the realm of uh, western art music so western classical music that had the purpose of trying to resolve some compositional problems for a specific class of composers you know funded by a specific class of society in order to have more creative freedom for the musical genre that they were working within and that slowly became a standard and that system 12 tone equal temperament is inherited and it's inherited in all of the digital tools that we have at our disposal because of its links to western music theory and therefore it's become the predominant tuning system musical system that is available across the world in the majority of musical instruments I've been sort of, I've been trying to come up with the perfect metaphor for what you're doing or, or like what you're making us aware of with this us being used to this equal temperament in, in the so-called West. I think about that it's like we're just using like we have 600 muscles in our body. We're just using 100 of them or like just using one color palette instead of all colors. I think that's, that's slightly better, I think, as a metaphor. <laughs> uh, also, you can say the same about language. You mm -hmm. can say that we're all speaking the same language as opposed or the same accent or the same dialect as opposed to variant dialects or we're all using the same spices or lack of spices in our foods there are many um, but it's, it's, i think that that's why your project works as a, a metaphor on a grander level where it makes us aware what we are bringing what we're not noticing we're not noticing our own filter or the lens through which we see or hear the world so as a metaphor i think to 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 make awareness about what equal temperament is that that there's a particular way that we do music in a particular part of the world but that's not the end goal that's not the only thing there is there's a lot of different ways to do stuff and that broadens the horizon for everyone that's true but i also think it's worth considering that it's not a simple west versus the rest of the world scenario it's not so black and white because ultimately, even within Europe, and this is why I mentioned earlier about this being a, an issue related to a specific musical class and a specific societal class, because in Europe, the music that is present even until today has many different tonalities and shades right, of these sonic colors. Think of something like flamenco, um, fado from Portugal, Nordic Scandinavian folk songs, um, the bagpipe traditions from Britannia in uh, France, Napolitan singing. And there's, it's just endless. You know, every culture has its own color, just like every country has a, a, you know, its own language or a variety of languages and then all the variety of dialects, etc. So in a way, it's, yeah, the language metaphor is probably quite relevant here because you can think of it in the same way as language has been standardized and many different dialects and um, vocabularies have slightly been 
you know, faded out in the favor of a certain linguistic style that has been chosen by a specific class. You know, I think of like whatever Italian after the unification of Italy, you know, a very specific type of uh, literary Italian was used as the foundation for the Italian language. But in reality, when you go out in Italy and travel in the country, the dialects are wildly different. And, you know, the Sicilians don't barely speak the same language as the, as the Romans. You know, it's, uh, it's really crazy. So, uh, yeah, that, ultimately, it's really it's about cultural identity rather than these geographical regions that we've come to associate with you know, political power, ultimately. The link between technology and the music we make is it has a very long historical line, and 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 as you say, partly the equal temperament is based on technological advancements and particular historical uh, events hundreds of years ago. And this is kind of a big question about how technology has shaped music through history. Um, how do you see the link between technological innovation and and musical innovation uh, from a historical perspective? I think it's actually really fascinating because equal temperament is ultimately a theoretical construct. It wasn't ever practiced with 100% precision. For example, we have come to believe that the piano is a, a symbol of equal temperament. But in reality, the piano is not tuned to 100% equal. Maybe today they are, they are because of the, te the technology of the instrument design and the tuning capabilities have changed. But even 50 years ago, the piano, the piano wasn't tuned to equal temperament. There's an issue of harmonicity in the way that the strings resonate. And so very often the upper octaves of a piano would be tuned slightly higher sorry, slightly higher or slightly lower because of the tension of the strings, and then the lower octaves would be also different. If you listen to Billie Holiday, her backing band is a piano and a clarinet, so instruments that are associated with equal temperament. But when you hear those recordings, her singing style has a very specific tonality, a very specific intonation. You can think of it as an accent. It's Billie Holiday's sound. The same with Stevie Wonder. And so we've come to believe that equal temperament is embedded within Western instruments and Western music, but it really never was. Singers tend towards more pure intervals. They, you know, they, they, they sing into chords, the same with string players because they don't have frets. And so ultimately, obviously orchestral instruments try to stick to this equal temperament because of the way some of the instruments are designed, etc. But most of them are reasonably flexible. But it wasn't until the proliferation of digital technologies that we actually started to hear 100% precise equal temperament. So the theory, the idealized theory, didn't actually become pure reality until we had digital synthesizers. If you compare a jazz band that uses digital keyboards, like the digital pianos, like the Nord, you know, sometimes you see jazz bands with these red keyboards. These are tuned perfectly because they're digital instruments. Compare a recording from the 90s or from the 2000s using those instruments to a jazz recording from the 70s, 60s, 50s, and it's a completely different feeling. And that's one, of the, that's one of the reasons. So I find this shift incredibly fascinating because the technology that was actually 
supposed to emancipate everybody because it has the capabilities to change from tuning system to another. You could resolve all the compositional problems that um, theorists try to resolve by cr creating equal temperament. You can actually resolve those just using the digital tools by having the ability to switch between tuning systems on the fly. But that technology, which was supposed to emancipate us, actually ended up being a, a tighter straitjacket than it was supposed to be. And that's also a long question to do with, sorry, long answer to do with the development of technologies, the economic market, economic decisions made by manufacturers, the, um, uh, excuse me, I'm only thinking in Arabic for some reason now, the ease and the convenience of having everything made to the same system so that, you know, musicians don't have to think about it. They just sit down together and it's supposed to all be in, in tune when in fact it's kind of all out of, it's, it's all out of tune, but all out of tune together. <laughs> so uh, coming back to a project, I was thinking, is it for music making itself or is it more like an educational tool that, that teaches you something that reminds us that there are this broad palette of different tunings or is it is it both? I think it's both and maybe more. It, I think it's worth highlighting that there have been many uh, tools that have been created throughout, you know, whatever, the last 20, 30 years that tried to resolve these problems. And there are many musicians and composers who are invested in these problematics and in these issues and these subjects. But I think the fact that the tools we created, and I say we because I designed them and worked with a, a creative studio called Counterpoint run by Samuel Diggins and Tara Parvianian. They were the ones who coded and you know created the visual design for, for this based on my concepts and my uh, work with them. But ultimately it's, it's a really great tool for creative exploration. It's a great tool for education. And I think also it's a great tool for research for whether it be comparative research or analytical research in terms of music, in terms of tonality systems, as it starts to grow and the, the repository of tuning systems, you know, it becomes richer, I think it's going to be invaluable for, for being able to ask questions and analyze uh, this information both qualitatively and quantitatively. So I think it has these three prongs. Is now perhaps a good time to, to hear something, like an example? Uh... I, I'm, ha I'm happy to. It's just a bit anticlimactic. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, the reason being is that these tools run in a web browser. Uh, so the same browser that you use to check your emails and whatever, buy toilet paper from Amazon, it's the same thing. The reason why we chose the browser as a, um, as a platform is because it's very easy to maintain. It, it's very easy to access. There are, you know, much fewer barriers of entry than there are with any other tools. And basically, you don't need anything to, to make it work. It just runs in the browser and you can play everything with your QWERTY keyboard. So it has a very simple internal uh, synthesizer. So this is what it sounds like. This is equal temperament, right? But if I switch very quickly to something else, that's uh, uh, an Arabic maqam called Bestenegar. And I'm doing this literally by changing the tab on the browser. 
also play polyphonically. So you can hear weird chords and stuff. It sounds horrible to most people, but I love it. Boring, no flavor. Yeah, so yeah, that, this is the anticlimactic uh, result. But then, obviously, if you want to be a bit more creative, you can, like, I'm just going to patch it through to this. I have a little Moog synthesizer here, which... Equal temperament, and then Makam Bastanegar. So... So the, the fact that it outputs this data called MIDI means that you can use it with hardware or software instruments at the same time. One thing I've been working on in my own research is how electronic music is based on a different kind of playfulness or improvisation or uh, what is called a bricoleur, which is someone who plays with what is at hand, who uh, makes up things instead of having this like contemplative planned out goal-oriented way of working. In this playfulness, you've talked about something called repressed possibilities. Uh, can you tell us a bit what, what you mean by that? Yeah, ultimately, I think that musical cultures from around the world have not been afforded the same possibilities as Western, whatever, Anglo-European musical cultures have because of the limitations of the technologies, specifically because of this issue of tuning, but also, I mean, the issue of tuning is ultimately like the equal division of time versus the unequal division of pitch. And it's the same for rhythm. If you think about drum machines, when they were first made, they had a very specific grid. Everything was 16 beats long. You had these you know, fixed equal divisions of time in terms of rhythm as well. This, this has somehow been resolved with the technologies, you can, but it's still not as intuitive as it should be in my opinion. But what I feel has been repressed are the possibilities of exploration, the possibilities of uh, creative experimentation vis-a-vis -vis what was possible for Anglo-European Western musicians. And I think it's important here to also think of a, a, a historical context that like modern Western music in the 20th century, so modern Anglo-European music in the 20th century developed based on a reaction against the tonalities of romantic and classical music, right? 19th century music. And the reaction was mostly against the tonality. This is where we had, you know, the second Viennese school and uh, whatever, some of the Russian uh, composers, we're talking about Shostakovich, uh, Henry Cowell, uh, uh, obviously Schoenberg, uh, Webern, etc., who were creating serialism, Pierre Boulez, who created these systems of developing a, a new musical language that broke the rules 
broke all the rules of the modality and the tonality of the past. And while that was developing, technology started to develop, then we have computer music, synthesis, music concrete, uh, Pierre Schaefer, etc. And so the technologies then started leaning towards the idea of exploring sound as opposed to exploring pitch. And you can see it all, at least I see it this way, as a chain of reactionary events where you, know, you had a series of people trying to break the rules of what was happening before. And I don't think other musical cultures have, have had the possibility to break their own rules. And this is why I, I, I use the word repressed because I feel like those possibilities have been repressed because the technology never allowed for that. Or at least it did, but then you know, there was the possibility, but then even that possibility was repressed. So um, that's where ultimately that comes from, yeah. I like that, not being allowed to, to break your own rules. Uh, well, I don't like it, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, also because, we, as you said earlier, it's very much about convenience and electronic music and electronics in general and, and our contemporary society is about convenience. Yeah, I, I like to say equal temperament is the McDonald's of tuning. Because that's ultimately what it is. It's fast food. It's it doesn't really have any nutritional value. It doesn't really have much flavor. It's just easy and quick. McTune. <laughs> the McTuning, yeah. It is McTuning. And and you also relate this coming coming from the same perspective here. You also relate relate this to the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, not necessarily. I don't, I, okay. No, I don't. I don't see a direct relationship there at all. And I, I don't think I've ever said that as um, if, as far as my memory okay, goes. Me but I, I have mentioned that I was very much inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement, inspired by the sense of agency, the sense of community and the sense of using information and the exchange and transfer of knowledge in order to better serve the day-to-day -day lives. And unfortunately, the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's ar around it is really a life or death situation. Tuning is not, right? So I think we have to be very clear about that. But I do find that the agency and the strength and the um, willingness to tirelessly work for something incredibly inspiring, especially in light of what we've been living the last few years around the world. Um, so, Yeah, well, maybe I've been reading too much into, it, into your work. But, and, and also because I, I reread a researcher called Robin James. She's a philosopher of popular music who's written about how our conceptions of sound today shape the notions of the social world in ways that support, I'm looking into my notes, that support, and I quote her, white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, which is a tall order, I know, because at the same time, some might think that music is you know, innocent and, and pure and, and, and coming from an honest place and good intentions, everything. But at the same time, well, but what Robin James is saying is that if we stick to this perspective, the way that music is produced now, it is to some extent based on well, what she calls a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Philip Ewell, who's another researcher who spoke about these subjects recently, also calls this the white racial frame. And I find this to be an excellent metaphor and representation for this because 
Unfortunately, supremacy is at the heart of these ideas, but it's so deep in the roots that it's very hard for us to see. Nobody's going to buy a new synthesizer and think the synthesizer is supremacist, right? Or, but actually, the core principles upon which you know, many of these tools are based themselves are based on supremacy. And that supremacy that I'm talking about is the supremacy of Western art music, the supremacy of Western culture. And from the research that I've been doing, this also goes back to the way that music history is represented. If you search about microtonality or tuning um, in literature, on the internet, more likely than not, the first thing you're going to see is a reference to Pythagoras. And that it was Pythagoras that discovered this, and it was the Pythagoreans that developed it, and it was thanks to the Greeks that we have all this wonderful knowledge about tuning and about you know, sonics and the physics of sound. But Pythagoras's own biographer, Iamblichus, who wrote a few hundred years after Pythagoras, but based on what he knew at the time, says that Pythagoras went to Egypt to study, and then from Egypt was taken captive and went to Chaldea, which is modern-day Iraq, so Mesopotamia, and studied there in total for about 22 years, maybe more, and returned to his little island of Samos when he was 52 year years old, and that's when he founded his school, the Pythagorean school. Okay. So, and those same sources from that early period, which is the closest to Pythagoras that you know, has survived until now, also discuss the fact that Pythagoras was involved in the mystery schools of Egypt and Chaldea. So we're talking about religious mysticism and the religious practices. And so it's very clear that Pythagoras didn't discover anything you know, he learned these things. The knowledge was transferred. And then he developed it. I'm not trying to discredit him. But he's in himself, anyway, a mythical figure, right? So, but then I actually was doing some other research and I found that there is written references and archaeological evidence of the same tuning system that Pythagoras discovered in China in the form of lithophones, which are tuned stones, tuned rocks, from around 1500 BC, if I'm not mistaken. So that's a thousand years before Pythagoras, that the Chinese were tuning rocks to the same mathematical principles that Pythagoras supposedly discovered. In every single book about tuning and microtonality, the Chinese are mentioned in passing you might get a couple of paragraphs, a page if you're lucky. Right? Then, going even further, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, a clay tablet was discovered in Mesopotamia. It's called the tuning tablet because it describes a method for tuning the ancient Mesopotamian harp. It's a nine-stringed harp. There is one that exists, which is at the British Museum. And this tuning text doesn't, give precise details of what the tuning should be in terms of ratios or string lengths or anything like that. But it does tell you how to tune your instrument and how to cycle through different seven different modes, which are 
ultimately the same seven modes that we are told today are the Pythagorean ancient Greek modes. And that's from the old Babylonian period, which is dated any time between 1500 to 2500 BC. So that's whatever, 1500 years older than Pythagoras. Okay. These things you never hear about in this discussion. And what I've come to realize is that we don't hear about them because there is this perpetuation of this 18th century, 19th century, Austro-Germanic English myth that civilization started with the Greeks. And this idea that the Greeks are the ones who are responsible for bringing this arts and the sciences and politics and philosophy to the world. And some of those same researchers who said that even go as far as to say that philosophy and the arts and the sciences could not have existed anywhere east of Greece because the climate is too hot. And I'm not bullshitting you. <laughs> so it's really wild. And so when you realize that there's that history and that ultimately these perspectives have been perpetuated through the fundamentals of musical concepts. And then, you know, that's not to mention about the supremacy of whatever Western classical music in itself and the ideas related to the orchestra and how, you know, Western music education was imposed on musical cultures through colonization throughout the years. It's not for no reason that, you know, so many amazing Western classical musicians today, orchestral musicians, are from previously colonized countries. It's not for no reason that the piano became one of the most predominant instruments across the world, exported and imposed on children, <laughs> you know, forced to play and forced to learn. And obviously there's been a pushback, but that's for me where the supremacy lies. And that's for me where, where it comes from, that's its trail. But obviously there's been pushbacks and there are many other cultures that have developed and flourished through those periods. I mean, Indian classical music really developed in the Mughal period and you know, right up through to the early 20th century. But again, we come back to the question of technology and modern tools. Once those tools became consumer tools, that were easy to manufacture, cheap, uh, easy to distribute, they proliferated the entire world and therefore imposed their own perspective on the entire world as well. And it, you know, th that's ultimately where we are now. So that white racial frame or that, um, uh, sorry, I can't remember the exact words of Robin James's um, phrase, but that uh, patriarchal Western capitalist ideology, unfortunately, it's like it's in the water that was used to grow the seeds. So in a way, everything is contaminated. So we need to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, as you say, it's, it's, it's getting around because digital technology is easier to distribute. Like everyone can download Ableton's Live or... or um, Just a free app on the iPhone. Whatever, yeah. And let's be honest, most of these programs, DAWs, DAWs, Digital Audio Workstations, are often download illegally um, and have been for some 10, 20 years. But considering that, isn't there a upside to this globalization that it's sort of there is a democratization that, that a 15-year-old in Kathmandu or Lima or whatever can sit down without any funds, without any training and, and start composing music? Of course, but I think the problem here is to do with choice. 
What's, a, what's an interesting comparison? People are going excite, to get excited about things that they don't know, but removing the sense of agency and removing the choice that somebody might have in order to explore something else, for me, is a problem. So I don't think it's democratic. I think that's actually, I think that's a bullshit word. And I'm sorry to, to use that, to, to be so strong about it, but I, because it, it reminds me of the same discourse that we were hearing around you know, the Iraq war and post 9-11, that you know, America's going to plant democracy around the world and that you know, the allied powers are here because they want to spread democracy. And, and it's the same vein in which you know, these terms are used with regards to music technology. And I just find it ridiculous because it's not democratic. Democracy needs to be about choice. Choice needs to be based on knowledge. And if that choice doesn't exist, then there is no democracy. So it's, for me, it's clear that it's not democratic. But I want to be very clear. I don't think that musicians from other cultures should use these tools only to play traditional music. I don't think that this is about putting digital possibilities into the mu this museum straitjackets of uh, uh, Orientalist perspectives of, wow, you have a beautiful culture, you need to preserve it and safeguard it, and this needs to be respected and held on to. I think people need to have the choice to break their own rules, to, to develop ideas in their own image based on their own culture, based on whatever, they're, whatever they have in their mind. From, from sort of the capitalist supply and demand perspective, couldn't you see say that the, the people who are producing these various softwares, if there's a demand for it, wouldn't they just accommodate that? The, 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 since they're on there, it must mean that there's not a demand for it. I've heard this argument many times, and I think it's quite interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, the main one, is that modern music technologies started as electric instruments. And in the late 80s, a digital language was developed in order to allow those instruments to communicate with each other. That's, that was the term that was used. This language is called MIDI, Musical Instrument Digital Interface. And this language was designed out of an economic concern. It was designed by Dave Smith of Profit uh, Instruments, Dave Smith Instruments, uh, Ikutaro Kakehashi from Roland, which is a Japanese company. They saw a potential for the uh, mass adoption of these musical technologies. And they were concerned that they would not, that the market wouldn't be able to grow if those um, individual items were each of them their own little world, that, that there wasn't a way for them to communicate with each other. And ultimately, in the early days, that communication meant syncing. So to be able to sync the time between a drum machine and an LFO on a synthesizer, or an LFO from one synthesizer and an LFO on another synthesizer, for example. That was in the late 80s. Due to some... Um, interest and uh, research by a few composers, they convinced Dave Smith to introduce something called MIDI tuning standard, which was the ability to allow for different tunings in these new musical instruments using the language that had become the de facto standard for how these instruments communicate with each other and how they are developed within themselves. And MIDI tuning standard was ratified in the MIDI, the code of MIDI as a language, in 1991. In the late 80s, Wendy Carlos, who some of you might know from the Switched On Bach, she was an incredible, she'd spent a fortune 
I'm talking, you know, probably near on a quarter of a million dollars at the time, developing computer systems that could uh, allow her to explore these different tuning capabilities after ha obviously having had a lot of experience using analog electric equipment. And she was speaking very, very uh, excitedly about these new frontiers of digital music uh, equipment, specifically because they would emancipate the tuning standards and they would allow for all these different types of expression and exploration, etc. 1991 MIDI tuning standard is ratified, making it incredibly easy. And it's a foolproof, future-proof uh, code system. It, the, the resolution of it is way beyond you'll ever need, like way, way beyond the ability of even a dog probably to discern the difference, right? Uh, in terms of frequencies. And it works in a perfect way for any kind of musical culture, for any kind of experimental form. You can create a tuning system, play it, have those notes resonate and resound, change the tuning system without, tuning, without changing the tuning of the previous notes and play a new one whilst maintaining the old ones. It's absolutely wonderful, perfect. And it was used in a few uh, synthesizers at the time, specifically the first commercially manufactured um, and commercially available digital FM synthesizer, which was the Yamaha DX7. It was used in many of Dave Smith's um, instruments. It was used by um, Yamaha. Uh, I can't remember many other companies, but then it just kind of died out. The manufacturers stopped including it and they stopped allowing that particular type of code, even though it's still within MIDI, they stopped allowing it or accommodating it to, to be transferred from one device to another. So you couldn't even have like a, a central controller and change those other synthesizers, change the tunings of them. It just wouldn't accept that information, wouldn't accept the data. So what was an economic concern developed into an, an emancipating project uh, in order to allow all of these different palettes of exploration. And ultimately, the door was very firmly shut. So today, when, when people say, or I've spoken to a few instrument manufacturers who have told me the same thing, well, there isn't a market for this. Right? But seriously, when did the market define the potential for creative expression? Like so many musical instruments were made with the sole intent of emancipating musicians or creating new forms or new ideas. You know, even going back to the theremin, the theremin, the Ondmacht, you know, these early electric instruments, uh, the synthesizers, Bob Moog's synthesizers, Don Buchler's synthesizers, uh, uh, the drum machines made by Roland and um, whoever else. Uh, all of these instruments were made with the idea of advancing musical expression, advancing musical culture, and allowing for experimentalism and experimentation. So they weren't thinking 100% about the market and economic viability, even though obviously they needed to, but that never stopped them from being innovative, right? from trying to spearhead innovation in any way. So for somebody today to turn around and say, if there was a market for tuning, I'd include it. 
just makes no sense to me. One, because that means that they are literally repressing innovation. Two, the resolution for this is really not complicated. Allow MTS in your MIDI code. That's it. Right? After we launched Apotome in Lima in January 2021, Aphex Twin, who has been a proponent of non-equal tempered tunings for many, many years, had been collaborating for the last four years with a Eng new English company called Odd Sound. And in March, they released a plugin that would uh, allow the central control of tuning across all kinds of different devices, hardware devices mostly, because I guess this was also one of Aphex Twin's main concerns that the technology has changed and there's so many things that are obsolete that you need to find a way to be able to control as many of them in, in, a, in a simple interface as you can. And they called it MTS ESP because it's based on MTS, this element of MIDI language which was ratified in 1991. That was released this year, 30 years after that. Only because Aphex Twin agreed, I guess, to help them uh, you know, uh, promote it, etc. because he's such a huge name. So the fact that the solution from a synth manufacturer's perspective is so easy, even from a DAW manufacturer's perspective is so easy, makes this argument of market or no market, for me, in my view, completely redundant. What happened to MTS? Why did it die out in the 90s? I don't know. I think it's funny because it doesn't even... It doesn't even take up that much code. We're not talking about like RAM chips that can only hold six kilobytes of information or whatever. We're talking about, you know, it's, it's basic, simple data. Doesn't, does, it's not heavy in terms of file size or transfer. So I think my explanation would be that they're just not interested. And so if there's no need for something which they view as extraneous code, then they just don't include it because they maybe they didn't know that all these other tunings exist. Maybe they don't think it's necessary because the convenience of equal temperament is, you know, perpetuated across the world. I don't know. I have no idea whatsoever because it really isn't such a big deal. What is a big deal is how you would represent that information. But even if they don't want to go into doing the musicological research to understand how to represent tuning data to satisfy the needs of musical cultures across the world, at the very least, they could just allow for that functionality, which they don't. So I can't think of any other reason for it, apart from that they're not interested or they don't know about it. That is interesting and kind of weird. It's almost a conspiracy. I mean, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Right? We have enough of those as it is. But even I give you an example. Even like, this is going to blow your mind if you don't know it already. You all heard of AutoTune, right? You know what AutoTune is, yeah? AutoTune allows for non-equal tempered tunings, but <laughs> you can only use the presets that they have put in there. You cannot use your own custom data. And the presets that they have in it are completely tokenistic. Arabic one is one of the pro weapon. The Arab world has at least, what, four historical, historical, I mean, from the 10th century onwards, tuning systems. If you want to push it a little bit more, maybe up to eight. What's Arabic one? There's a maqam system that has 53, 55 different maqams up to 100, and 100 different branches of those maqams. What does Arabic one mean if it's not just some tokenistic thing? And then the way it maps, the way that it works, the way it's visually represented is a disaster. So even Autotune, who are 
you know, the, the, it's a div, it's a plugin software created by the company that was trying to make again another studio uh, production technique easier and cleaner, trying to perfect tuning of ultimately voices or instruments that were recorded. Who were so you know, it's a company that's obsessed with the idea of tuning becoming perfect or as close to perfect as can be, even they included these non-equal tempered possibilities, but tokenistically and in a way that's completely unusable. So the technology exists. What doesn't exist is the, 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 the understanding. It doesn't, the, what doesn't exist is the desire to actually reach out and make something like that possible. And ultimately what we have now is the McDonald's of tuning being used all over the world for all kinds of music. And just because some kid in Morocco is rapping in Amazir, everybody thinks that music making is democratized. But he's rapping in a dialect that comes from German church music. Ultimately, something's wrong here. Something is wrong here, says Kiamalami, and we will let that be his final words. But there are a number of resources online if you want to find out more about Apotome, or yeah, even try it out yourself. Now you have at least become aware of how even digital software contains structures that are not innocent. Or yeah, not innocent meaning that they also practice some sort of power, whether obvious or not. You have been listening to an edited version of an artist talk with the Iraqi-British musician, composer and researcher Kia Malami that took place during this year's edition of the Gong Tomorrow Festival. The talk was moderated by Anders Reuter. It also exists in writing, published by the online magazine PassiveAggressive.dk in collaboration with RMC and Gong Tomorrow. A shout out to everyone who made this talk happen, especially Kiam Alami. My name is Jan Høstrækker of the RMC, and I hope you will tune into RMC podcast again in the near future.